It's good to see you all today. Yeah, a little bit of a life update. It's good news. I actually am starting work at the Milwaukee Rescue Mission uh, tomorrow, so thank you all for your, uh, your prayers. Yeah. A lot of new things coming with that. Uh, for one, I was just reflecting on this the other day with some people. It's going to be four or five years since I've actually ever commuted to work. Uh, I've, I've been working from home for the last four or five years, and so it's going to be a, definitely a, a new change in that respect. Also, new, a new change in just a whole different uh, line of work. I was a geologist in uh, my past, uh, past line of work, but now I'm going to be uh, hopefully administering the gospel to uh, uh, a different population now here in, in Milwaukee. So, uh, I also figured that there's, there's going to be some new dynamics here at home. Uh, Olivia has been used to me uh, kind of being home all day, all the time. Uh, and so maybe it's good news for her that I can finally get out of the house. Um, but I also was reflecting on some scenarios that might, uh, we, we might encounter over the next couple um, of, of days and weeks as we kind of get adjusted to this, uh, this new thing. And one of which is perhaps, perhaps one day I come home after a long day of work and I'm exhausted. And as Dan uh, said earlier, I'm still in seminary, so I have still some schoolwork to get done uh, that night. That's on my mind. I have a lot of stuff to do. Still, I'm exhausted. Still have a lot of stuff to do. Coming in the door, and Olivia, yeah, she's also been at work all day, and so she would like me to help out. So she asked me to go down and grab her laundry. And immediately, I, I think that, man, I just, okay. I, mean, I have all this stuff to do, but I guess I'll go get the laundry. Go down, go grab it. It's not, it's not a big deal. It takes a couple seconds. And then after dinner, we're kind of cleaning up, and she says, oh, by the way, did you uh, by any chance uh, get a chance to call the insurance company just to make sure that our next appointment is uh, covered? And at that point, I, uh, that's, just the, that's just the tipping point for me. And I kind of, uh, kind of lash out at her. I say, no, I haven't gotten around to it. I have all this other stuff to do. Stop bothering me about it. I'll get it done. And instantly, I see that she just deflates. But I know that if I don't say something now, I'm going to be at odds with her all night, probably. At the same time, there's something inside of me that prevents me from apologizing and asking for forgiveness. Part of which is, part of me kind of blames her for aggravating me, even though it was nothing that she would have known. So I blame her. And also in my heart, I, I, I also... I'm afraid that perhaps if I go to her with my heart out to her, that sh perhaps she'll crush it. Maybe she'll throw it back in my face. So all this is going in my head. I'm irritated that I can't. I, I know I'm in the wrong, but I still just can't go to her. So even my irritation starts to irritate me because here I thought I was going to have all this time to work on my schoolwork, but now, I, now all, I'm thinking about this. And so the next hour is going to be going to be me working up the courage to go ask for forgiveness instead of getting stuff done. So it's actually done the opposite of what I had wanted. And perhaps um, others have been here, not just a spouse. Perhaps it's a co-worker. Perhaps it's another family member. Um, but Christian, our God has not left us to drown in our sin. A passage like Mark 2 this morning can actually empower us for obedience in situations like this. This morning we're going to learn a very important truth about who this Jesus is. Jesus has divine authority to forgive sins as shown by his divine authority to heal the paralytic. 
Jesus has divine authority to forgive sins as shown by his divine authority to heal the paralytic. So as we walk through this story, we're going to uh, just kind of walk through it line by line, as we often do. And as we do that, I'm going to add a few things to colorize the story. And this isn't just for fun, but uh, it hopefully is fun. But uh, ideally, it would, you'd, it would help you guys put yourself in the situation and be able to live, uh, live the story as if you're actually there. And the purpose of this is actually to see the rising tension in the story so that we can better see the climax of the story. This is one of the tools that we use when we're reading narrative, is kind of look at the plot arc of the story to find the emphasis. So it is my hope that we can do that this morning, because we want to better understand the author's emphasis for us. So without further ado, we will go ahead and get started here and walk through the text. So looking at verse 2-1, it says that Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days. He returned to Capernaum. So already the author has set the scene for us. If you remember back from chapter 1, which we heard preached a couple weeks ago, the last time he was in Capernaum, it was back in 121, and a few things happened there. One, it said that he, had, uh, he was speaking in the synagogues with an, with an authority, authoritative teaching, and people were amazed by that. It also says that he healed a man with an unclean spirit. And then in verse 128, it says that his fame spread all throughout Galilee. And so everyone wants to see him. Everyone has heard of his, of his miracles that he's performing. And so now they, now they hear that he's back. He's back in town. And the people who didn't see it the first time, they have a chance to actually see who this Jesus is and see for themselves. Is he really the man that everyone is proclaiming him to be? And so already there's this expectation that Jesus is going to perform for them. And so in verse 2-2, it's unsurprising when we read that many were gathered together so that there was no more room even at the door. They're packed in like sardines, Okay. It's, 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 it's almost, you can imagine that it's so tightly packed in there that it's hard to breathe. But it's also quiet because everyone is trying to hear the, hear the Lord Jesus preach the word. Those who are outside who have who kind of made it a little late, uh, they're kind of at the door. Perhaps uh, they're leaning in trying to catch every word that they can. Perhaps they, they lose every fourth word or so. But Jesus is preaching the word, and people are gathered to hear it. It has authority. And if I were uh, directing this uh, story as a movie, or perhaps a TV show, and I was directing this scene, perhaps I would, I would kind of uh, stop it here at, at this particular location. I'd switch to another location, cut to another house, mainly because there is a character who has not yet arrived on the scene yet. He's sitting at the window, he's looking out, and he's waiting for someone, perhaps his brother-in-law, to round up three other people. See, this man is paralyzed, and he's heard, he too has heard that Jesus has come. But unfortunately, he can't get there like all the rest of the people. This is before wheelchairs, so he needs to be carried. Perhaps he was born with this uh, 
uh, paralysis. Perhaps it was an injury that he received from work. And it's uncertain how he would have been treated. Perhaps he was ostracized a little bit, but uh, perhaps he was also cared for by his family. But there's a lot of stake for this man. Financially, he can't go to work. Most of the work would have been hard labor. And so he's unable to provide for himself. He's unable to provide for a family if he did have one. It's also probably difficult for him to go offer sacrifices and worship at the temple. He needs to be carried every single time. So there's a lot at stake here. But it seems at least he has a few friends or family because he does round up a few people that actually carry him to see Jesus. Because he's heard that a few days ago he actually healed a man with leprosy. And if he can heal a man with leprosy, surely, surely he can heal a man who's paralyzed, right? So naturally, he shows up a little later than everyone else. Everyone else, he's, Jesus is probably uh, uh, well into his teaching and by the time that he shows up. And he sees that there's no way he could possibly get in and see him. They're crammed, at the, they're crammed like sardines, like I said. They're, they're packed at the door. And so instantly, you can, uh, as you're watching this scene unfold, you see his eyes grow a little moist. A, 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 a look of desperation falls on his face. What is he going to do? So immediately he says to, the, to, to those uh, carrying him, Go, oh, take, take me to the roof. Take me to the roof. And so they look at the men who are carrying him, look at each other. And they're like, what is this? Take him to the roof? How is that going to help anything? This guy's out of his mind. It's a long shot, but uh, hey, I mean, he came this far. We carried him this far. May as well just bring him to the roof. So they do that. And inside, you can sort of hear the, uh, the footsteps on the top. But Jesus continues to teach. It's not enough yet to distract anyone. But maybe perhaps some people are kind of looking up and wondering who it is who's on top of the house. There's a sound of muffled voices as they um, are talking to one another up there. And all of a sudden, Wham! Wham! I don't know how I don't know how you get through a roof. I, I assume you have to like slam it or something. Uh, but the houses back then they would have been made with a bed of reeds covered with uh, kind of a mud plaster, and so um, they're they're digging perhaps they're digging through the roof. Mud and dust is falling down on the people inside. It's already hard to breathe. Now they're having the cough. Quite the inconvenience for them. Jesus has stopped teaching at this point, and I'm no expert in ancient Israel roof break-ins, but it's got to at least take five to ten minutes, right? You would think. So finally, the sunlight breaks through. You hear the count of three in Hebrew, Ehad, Shnaim, Shalosh. They lift up the man, and they slowly start to lower him down through the ceiling right in front of of Jesus. They make room for him. They kind of spread out. Some more people are shoved out the back. At that point, by the time they reach the ground, perhaps some people recognize the man. They know that he is paralyzed. And so already there is this expectation. People are start starting to talk with one another. Perhaps, is Jesus going to actually heal this man? We're going to see something spectacular today. Oh, I'm going to love telling grandma about this later. And so as he reaches the ground, 
everyone's in expectation that he's going to heal this man. I kind of uh, picture it like this. If you've ever seen some of those movies or TV shows where the nerd kind of goes in for the kiss, he kind of leans forward, his, his mouth is puckered and his eyes are closed. He's waiting for uh, uh, the woman to kiss him. I kind of imagine like this. He's down on the ground. His arms are out wide. His eyes are closed. Big smile. He's waiting for feeling to return to his feet. He's waiting. And then all of a sudden in verse 5 it says, Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the man, Your sins are forgiven. That's not what the man expected, was it? So the man kind of opens up one eye. (laughs) Disbelief. No, no, you misunderstand me. I, I wanted to be healed here. This is not what I had came for you to do. And everyone else is expecting the same thing. They're expecting this miraculous healing. And instead, Jesus pronounces that his sins are forgiven. It's obvious why the, why the man is there. What we have here is, in the story, sort of a false summit. We expect the story to be resolved here, just like the other ones have been, where Jesus heals the individual. But instead, he does something completely different. He forgives the man of his sin. And just pause there. Isn't it good, church? That when we come to God with our greatest felt needs, that he doesn't give us what we always want, but he gives us what we really need, right? And I'm thankful that God knows what I, what I actually need more than I do and doesn't always give me what I, what I want because that would be bad for me. Would it not? But returning to the story, we have another problem here. That Jesus has just said that he has the authority to forgive sins. And if that's not true, then that's blasphemy and that's punishable by death. He has authority to forgive sins. Kind of an illustration here. It's it's kind of like if I were to go ahead and uh, just totally just nail Sam Park in the face, okay? Now, knowing how strong I am, I probably, he's, he's laid out, okay? Probably knocked him out. Now, what if I then went to Kirk and asked Kirk for forgiveness? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? Because Sam's the one that I offended, right? And so in the same way, if we offend God with our sin, it is only God who has the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus, if he is not God, who, what authority does he have to forgive sins, right? That is the problem that has now been entered into the story. How can Jesus forgive sins if he's not God? Well, we know that he is God, but at the moment the scribes do not know this. The scribes have been open to his teaching probably up to this point. They've heard that he's been uh, doing some miraculous healing that's great, that's fine. But now he has gone too far. Verse 6. He says, why does this man speak like that? They're questioning because the scribes, so the scribes were, were individuals who made copies of the Bible. They were very detail-oriented. They had to make sure they got every word correct. They were also teachers of the word. They knew it uh, quite well. And so in that case, I actually understand their position a little bit. Because if you remember, Israel not so long ago just got out of exile for worshiping idols. So now we have a man claiming to be God. He's showing up. He's gathering followers. He's claiming to be God. They're at risk of going back into exile. Are they not? 
So perhaps, too, I would question it, too. I would want to know that this man really is who he says he is. But Jesus responds asking, why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus makes it seem that they shouldn't be surprised at all at this point that he can forgive sins. And his second question is rhetorical. It says, why do you question these things? Oh, I'm sorry. He says, uh, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, there's a few main possible ways we could, we could answer this question rhetorically. It is rhetorical, so it doesn't actually give us the answers. It's up to us to kind of understand what he's trying to say here. The first is that perhaps the answer to this question is that it's easier or that it's more difficult to say. And it's more difficult to say your sins are forgiven than to say get up and walk. Now, this is kind of the first thing that came to my mind when I read this. But here it says that Jesus says that he's going to demonstrate his authority over sins by healing the man. So it doesn't make sense that he would prove the more difficult thing with something that is less difficult. It's sort of like this. If I were to kick a 25-yard uh, field goal, right? But then I would say that I can also kick a 60-yard field goal. That wouldn't prove that I could do that, right? That 25-yard uh, field goal is way easier than a 60-yard field goal, right? If I want to prove what's more difficult, I need something at least as difficult to prove it to you, right? So in the same way for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, and then prove that with the easier thing doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So naturally, the other solution is that the harder thing is to say, get up and walk. Now, how does that make sense? Well, note, what he's saying here is not easier to do. He's saying it's easier to say, get up, or it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Sort of an illustration of this would be... Um, uh, it might be quite easy for me to flippantly say, uh, go around telling people that I love them, right? That's not something that's very easy to verify in the moment. Sometimes that takes a long time. Over time, you kind of see their actions and they prove it to you that you actually do uh, demonstrate that you love them, right? But if I said, check your pockets, there's $100 in it right now today, that's something that you could verify immediately, right? You just check in your pocket. If it's there, then I was right. If it's not there, it's not, right? And so in that case, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's not something that's quite as easily verifiable. But to say get up and walk, they're going to look at the man, and if he gets up and walks, then Jesus proves himself to be who he says he is. If he doesn't, then he's a fool and he's a fraud, Right? And he's a liar. So what's Jesus doing here then? He's setting up what he's about to do. He's going to use what's more immediately verifiable, the healing of the man, to prove what is not immediately verifiable, the forgiveness of sins. Well, both are equally difficult to do, and both are possible only by God's authority. Uh, a verse that helps us out with this is Psalm 103, 2-3. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, all his, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquity and heals all of your diseases. 
That psalm shows, that, shows us that it is God alone who forgives iniquity, and it is God alone who heals physical illness. So how can he prove that he has the authority to forgive sins? By doing something that is equally difficult by God's authority alone, but is more immediately verifiable. And it's at this point of the story that uh, it can go one of two ways. Either the man gets up and Jesus is vindicated from what he has said, or he doesn't. This is the climax of the story. It could go either way. And what does the text say? Verse 12, he says, He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Both the healing of the uncurable medical conditions and the forgiveness of sins are rooted in the same authority of God alone. And so when Jesus displays his divine authority to heal the man of an uncurable disability, he also demonstrates his divine power to forgive the, man, the man's sins. And so Jesus is proclaiming that he is God, and he proves it by healing the man. So dozens of people see God's authority on display, and the scribes have nothing they can say in response because he did exactly what he said he was going to do. So as we said in the beginning, what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? And it's this, that Jesus has divine authority to forgive sins as shown by his divine authority to heal the paralytic. And I was thinking uh, kind of uh, how I might uh, kind of... Uh, apply this passage to my life this week. And I think that sometimes I believe this truth on a theological level, but functionally, I think that myself and perhaps all of us need this reminder daily that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And so as I was thinking about this, I asked myself, what are some of the ways that we struggle to live in the good of this reality? And the first one that, I, that, that came to my mind was this, that we often try to pay the fine for the offense that has already been forgiven. A couple of weeks ago, after I, I led worship, I immediately turned to everyone in, in, on the worship team and started apologizing for all the mistakes that I made and just being an awful leader to them that day. And even after they said, oh, it's not a big deal, you were fine, you were great, I continued to try to come to them and ask for their forgiveness. It wasn't until Drew Pond stopped me that I realized that I, that I was refusing to accept the fact that they had actually already forgiven me for that, even if they probably didn't even think about that, right? And so I think we tend to do that too when we come to, to, come to God with our sins. We want others to see our jail time, okay? We, we, want, we want them to know that we're going above and beyond to pay for our sins and our mistakes. And so we do have the same mentality sometimes when we go to God um, with our sin. And there's definitely, definitely a need to be remorseful, right? I'm not, don't mishear me on that. But we cross over to unbelief when we, when we refuse to let Jesus pay the fine. We feel the need to punish ourselves beyond the punishment already paid by Christ. 
And so when we approach God this way, we are declaring to him that we don't think Christ's death was sufficient and there's still some debt left to be paid in order to receive forgiveness. And so in those moments, we don't believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Christian, what a rejoiceful thing it is when we can come to Lord Jesus with our greatest and darkest sins and he can look at us and say, go free. Let your sin rule you no longer. There is no fine left to pay. There is no time left to serve. Your sins are forgiven. And then as we proceed to wage war on the flesh, then we fall once again to the deception of sin. We come to him once more and he says, that too I have paid for. Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Guys, God is patient with us. He's gracious to us. And I like the illustration Dan used a couple weeks ago about uh, sort of this uh, uh, God treating our, uh, revealing our sin to us sort of like an onion. He peels back the layers that we are not crushed by the overwhelming weight of our sin, but slowly he reveals to us in his grace that we might come to him and turn to him repeatedly and know that it is not by our own means that we can, uh, that we, that we can survive this Christian walk, but only by obedience and by God's ongoing grace to us, Right? And so this forgiveness of sins is supposed to empower us for obedience. It sets us free from its mastery over us. Now on the flip side, uh, opposite of that, I think we also don't make a regular habit of repentance of all our sin. In fact, if you're like me, I prefer a tiered system. So some uh, grievous sins, this, this is variant for all of us, right? Some things, like maybe for me, it would be stealing. Some things, if I were to steal something, I'd make sure that I go to God in repentance. But for other things, we let slide underneath the rug and we put into the sometimes repent category. Maybe something like I started with in the beginning, something like sinful anger. Maybe I don't need to always ask God for forgiveness for that. But my sin, our sin, is first and foremost rebellion against God's rule and reign. And so what do we say when we choose not to bring our sin before God in repentance? We undermine the seriousness of our offense and our need for forgiveness by God. And that way we do not live in the goodness of this truth that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So what would it look like, therefore, for this passage to actually be helpful for us throughout this week? Let's return and consider the original scenario that I put forth. If you remember, I, at this point, I am simply angry at my wife. I am refusing in my heart to go to her and ask for forgiveness. I've just responded to her in sinful anger. There's a rift between us. Well, the first thing that we observe is that there's also a rift between me and God, right? I have disobeyed him in the way that, I have, that I'm called to love my wife. But Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, am I right? And he has paid my debt. Immediately, therefore, I run to God. I say, Lord, I have sinned against you. 
I've sinned against Olivia. You have called me to love others, but instead I have shown her unrighteous, self-centered anger. But I know that you are rich in mercy. I know that the blood of, the blood of Christ has paid my fine. Please forgive me. Help me to live in obedience. And so at that point, the claim of Mark 2 calls back to me. It says, my sweet child, your sins are forgiven. That too I have paid for. Let sin no longer have a hold on you. Go and sin no more. And isn't it right that when, I, that when we are made right with God, his promise of forgiveness empowers us to live in obedience then? If I can sit in the truth that I have been forgiven, that my sin no longer has a hold on me, my pride has been broken, I should now want to go to Olivia and display the work of the gospel in that, that, that God has shown towards me, that I now ha, have received. And God's forgiveness of my sins become a living testimony to his power as I go to her and show her that God has set me free from this. And so now, even though I was caught in sin, I now administer the gospel to her. Perhaps it's the other way around, though. Perhaps Olivia has sinned against me in this situation. It's a totally different scenario. Perhaps she comes to me asking for forgiveness. Oh, how I'd like sometimes for her to pay for her sin more than Christ already has, right? I want her to know just how great her sin is. It puffs me up, actually. How dare you offend someone as great as me? But here in this moment, Mark 2 calls back to me. Jesus has forgiven me, so now I can display the gospel at work in me and extend to her the, the offer of complete forgiveness. Her sin becomes an opportunity for me to minister the gospel to her in that moment. And that is a reality that I want to live in. Is that a reality that you guys want to live in, Right? A reality in which the people of God use occasions of sin to administer the gospel and God's kingdom to one another, not our own kingdoms. So as we move into the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that the forgiveness of sins is a reality that we live in now. We remember that Jesus' blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. God has given us a pictured promise to remember this truth because the Lord's Supper is, is, is because the Lord's Supper is a picture of our salvation it is therefore only for those who are living in repentant faith not that we are perfect the Lord's Supper assumes that we are not but those who are waging war against the flesh and seeking to turn away from their sin by the power of the gospel the table is open for you And we read in, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, we drink judgment upon ourselves. For that reason, if you're here today and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. We pray that this truth of today's passage would lead you to place saving faith in the one and only person who actually has any authority to forgive sins. But until you do so, we ask that you please refrain from coming forward to receive the elements at this time.
But if you are God's people and living in repentant faith, not perfect, but waging war against the flesh, the table is open for you today. So at this time, we'll come forward and take the elements as we, uh, as we sing this closing song, and then you can be seated, and then we'll partake together. Church, we were fully deserving of God's wrath. We were a people who were dead in our sins, but now we are a people who receive forgiveness of sin. Romans 6 says, We have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So believer, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Christian, for as long as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.